uh, we begin a new series today, What We Believe. And uh, this is going to be very, very uh, integral to where we're going over the next several weeks. Excited about this uh, series of messages. This week, we're talking about what we believe about God. Next week, uh, we're going to talk about what we believe about humanity. And that's where uh, uh, Philip Herring is going to be bringing the message next week. And he's been reading and studying, and, and he's read volumes and volumes of books and articles ready to deliver the message of what we believe about humanity. I cannot wait to sit in here at 9.30 with my wife uh, and listen to the Word of God being delivered by Philip Herring next week. And you want to join me in that. That's going to be a wonderful journey. Uh, now, I'll probably be here at 8 o'clock and, and 11 and 12.30 as well. But uh, I, I, So I'll get the whole load of hay. In fact, if you ever want to get really the full measure of a message, you ought to come at 8 and come back at 9.30, come back at 11, and then come on out at 12.30 and listen to all four messages. I mean, I listen to y'all sing every single hour. (laughs) You might say, well, it's the same message. Oh, no, it's not. It's different about every time. But anyway, so so then after we look at what we believe about humanity, then we're going to look at what we believe about rescue. And then what we believe about the church and what we believe about the Bible. So we're going to be looking at these key ingredients about what we believe. And, uh, and I, I, I am confident that it will be a great help to you. And it's, it's a great opportunity for you to invite friends and neighbors and co-workers who maybe have questions about who God is and, and what, what First Baptist Church Norfolk is all about. So as, as we start the series today... Uh, it is challenging. This is a challenging message. It's challenging for a couple of reasons. Not because we, uh, because we don't know what to say about God. And it's, it's not challenging because there's a lack of information to pass on about what we believe about God. It's just I don't have a lot of time to do everything that we've got to do today uh, to talk about what we believe about God. So I'm going I'm to uh, uh, point you toward a resource if you Google or, or do, get on your search engine and, and Google Baptist Faith and Message, uh, that is a document that uh, is uh, uh, kind of a, a guiding document for Southern Baptist churches. Now, I'm a Southern Baptist, and this is a Southern Baptist church. We don't apologize for that. Uh, that's who we are, and that's who we've been uh, since 1845. And so we're, we're, we're a Southern Baptist church. Now we, First Baptist Church Norfolk, existed before the Southern Baptist Convention. Did you know that? We're older than the Southern Baptist Convention. We don't say that with pride, but maybe a little bit of proud. Uh, but but uh, we are a Southern Baptist church. So if you Google Baptist Faith and Message, there'll be some PDF documents or some, some different things, or, or we, we probably have some Baptist Faith and Messages uh, little uh, 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 booklets that are around here that you can look at. Uh, but the Baptist Faith and Message, the latest edition is 2000, the year 2000. Uh, and that is essentially the guiding document for us and what we believe about God and Scripture and a lot of other things that we won't be able to touch on uh, here on a Sunday morning. But I encourage you to look at that and, and, evaluate, and, and, and read through that and study that. Now, I say it's a guiding document. We are Baptists, and, and this is important. And we'll talk about this uh, in several weeks when we talk about the church. But as, as a Baptist church, as a Southern Baptist church, uh, we do not have an ecclesiastical body that tells us how we're supposed to believe. 
First Baptist Church Norfolk is an autonomous church, as are all Southern Baptist churches. What that means is that we as a congregation determine what we believe. Now, we don't make it up as we go along. That We're also Southern Baptists. Uh, Southern Baptists don't make it up as, as they go along. I mean, there may be some that do, but, but as a Baptist, there is one rule of faith and order for our church. Just one. The one rule of faith and order for our church is the Bible. That's it. That, that is the one document that we turn to to help us understand why we do what we do and what we should be doing, okay? It is the Bible. It's not our tradition. It's not our ideas. It's not the culture around us. It's not what they say in Nashville, the headquarters of the Southern Baptist Convention. It is the Bible. And that is what directs us and guides us. And so uh, that's just all preamble. It's just something to help you. You go to the Baptist Faith and Message and you'll look and there's a thing on God. And just uh, open that up. They'll have a lot of different Bible verses that you can look at to help you. Today, what I wanted us to do is I wanted us to tackle or at least look at. We won't won't deal exhaustively. We're going to look at this one statement about God. We believe that there is one true and living God. And the one true living God is three in one. We believe that there is one true living God. And we believe that the one true living God is three in one. Now, we, let me b- break this apart for a second. We believe that there is one God. This is the affirmation of the church of uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ from, the, from its very beginning. It's the affirmation of Jesus himself. When he lived and, and someone came to him and said, uh, what's the greatest commandment? He quoted the great statement about who God is. It's called the Shema. And, and it says, hear, O Israel. This is Mark chapter 12, beginning verse 28 or 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second commandment like unto it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quoted the, that, that ancient Israel affirmation, the Lord is God. There is one Lord who is God. He is the one true living God. Now, when we talk about God, the one true God, we uh, have some, some affirmations about him. He is the creator, the sustainer, the provider, the rescuer, the redeemer, the protector, the preserver. Uh, Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's the one true and living God who holds the earth together. We believe that there is one true living God. But that second sentence is a little bit cagey. We believe that the one true living God is three in one. Now this is called the Trinity or the Godhead. The Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When we baptize in the baptistry, or even in your faith tradition of a Christian church, you will hear them baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's the Trinity. It is the three-in-oneness of God. We do not believe in three gods. We believe in one true living God who is three persons. The ancient affirmation, uh, 1800 
1,900 years ago, the ancient affirmation of the Christian church was we believe in God, who is the one true living God. He is one essence or one being and three hypostases is the Greek term, uh, three persons. So one being, three persons. Uh, you might say, well, that, 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 that's confusing. And I would say, yes, it is. If I were to try to explain the Trinity, and I have done this in different ways and different fashions until I began to study some of the heresies of the, uh, of the church, uh, I, I would describe the, the, the Trinity as uh, water. You know, water, H2O. You have liquid, gas, and you have ice. You know, uh, liquid, gas, and solid. And so I would say, well, the Trinity is like water. It is uh, like water is a liquid, and that's different than a solid, and that's different than a gas. But, but if, when I describe the Trinity that way, I am guilty of a heresy called modalism. And if I were back in the day, they would burn me at the stake for saying that. Or if I were to say, you know, the Trinity is, is kind of like the roles of, a, of an individual like, like me. I'm a husband, I'm a father, and I'm a pastor. And, and I would say, well, you know, maybe that's kind of a description of the Trinity, but that is also heresy. It's called monarchianism. Malarchianism. No, monarchianism. It's a heresy. Thank you, Ray. I love it when you laugh. All right. Anyway, so, so we, we have these different ways to try to describe the Trinity. And, and I, am, I, I contend that any time we try to illustrate what the Trinity is, then we fall prey to a heresy. So I don't try to illustrate it. Now, you might say, well, how can you explain it without illustrating? We're going to try, okay? I'll try. I'll try to help. But before I go there, if you ever hear a preacher stand up and quote this verse before he teaches something, prophet Isaiah, God spoke to the prophet Isaiah, and God said, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher, are bigger, greater, more profound than your thoughts. Uh, that is the default excuse as to why I cannot explain the Trinity adequately. It's because God's thoughts and ways are far bigger and broader and more intense and more complex than I could ever wrap my head around. So you might say, well, how can I understand who God is if I can't understand this, this three-in-oneness of God? Well, I think there's a way for us to maybe not understand it, but at least see it. As we look through Scripture, we see that, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, they are God. Everything that there is about God is, is, is bound up in God the Father. And everything that there is about God is bound up in God the Son. And everything that there is about God is bound up in God the Spirit. But as we look through Scripture and as we look in our own lives as followers of Christ, we see God the Father work in our life in a particular way. And we see God the Son work in our life in a particular way. And we see God the Spirit work in our life in a particular way. So although we don't understand the 
the metaphysical, big words, metaphysical nature of the Trinity, we can't understand how it works, how God works in the Trinity as a unity. We believe in one true living God, and that one true living God is three in one. If you have your Bibles, and and there are a lot of different... I'm preaching 22 different messages today, just so you know. I'm not kidding. There are actually, I counted them, 22 different messages. I've just preached three. Getting ready for number four. But, but there are a lot of passages we're going to look at today. I'm going to try to be slow, and, and, and we, I'm not going to ask you to turn to every one. But there is going to be a guiding verse that helps us on this discussion. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. Now, I'm, I'm not dealing with the text itself. I'm just dealing with the words in the text, okay? Paul is, is uh, sort of wrapping up his, his letter to the uh, believers in Corinth, his, his third or fourth letter to the believers in Corinth. And as he's wrapping it up, in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, he says these words. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I I, I don't think it's an accident. I don't think Paul was looking for adjectives and nouns to pack together and say, I'm going to put this one with Jesus, I'm going to put this one God the Father, I'm going to put this one God the Spirit. I believe that those are very intentional words, so we're going to try to backtrack that and see something about who God is by what Paul writes here. The, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Let's begin by looking at God the Father. What Paul says is that God the Father is the Lord of love, the love of God. Well, I think all of us would, would, uh, as followers of Christ, we would tend to agree that that God is love. And there are a lot of passages we could look at to to describe the love of God. John 3.16 would be one of them. Can you all quote John 3.16 with me? For God so that... Yeah, John 3.16. We we talk about the love of God. As we talk about the love of God, though, sometimes we bypass the holiness and the righteousness of God. I think that there are two overarching characteristics of God the Father that we need to be apprehended by. We need to be captured by. First is the holiness of God, and the second is the love of God. Now, these don't work in competition with each other. They work in concert with one another. Now, uh, Psalm chapter 145, verse 17. That's a verse you might write down. Psalm chapter 145, verse 17. The psalmist says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and he is gracious in all his works. In this one verse, we hear these two complementary components and characteristics of God the Father. He is righteous in all his ways. He is holy. And he is gracious in all his works. He is loving. When we think of who God is, we need to think of God in terms of his holiness and his 
graciousness or his love. And this is what we were taught as young children. If indeed you were taught this prayer as a young child, it is a small prayer that, that even the youngest of, our, uh, of us could remember and recite and understand. It's a small prayer and it's a, it's a child's prayer, but it is packed with great theology. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our, by his hands we are, thank you Lord for daily, yeah, first phrase, God is great. This is the holiness, the heavenliness of who God is. God is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is perfect in everything. He is morally perfect. He is righteous. He is holy. He is holy, and that means that he cannot have fellowship with sin. He cannot have relationship with sin. He created humanity for himself to have relationship with us, but because of our sin, we are separated from God. Not because God moved in any way, but because we rebelled against him. Again, as the prophet Isaiah declared, God's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. His ear is not dull that he cannot hear. But our sins have separated us from God. Why? Because he is holy. He is perfect. He is righteous. And we are not. When we think of the holiness of God, we need to think of the grandeur of God and the majesty of God and the greatness of God. Do you know that you are not God? Do you realize that God is not just a supersized version of you? God is God. He is different than we are. He is greater than we are. He is more majestic than we are. He is God and he's in charge. He is God the Father who is in control of all things. He is sovereign above all things. He knows everything. He can do anything. He is everywhere at all times. He is God. I just preached a week's worth of messages right there. Y'all don't know that, but I just did. God is righteous in all his ways. Now, when we consider the majesty of God, the holiness of God, the heavenliness of God, when we consider the greatness of God and the perfections of God, it should leave us trembling in awe. I, I, I do understand this about us. We become so familiar as followers of Christ, we become so familiar with, with who God is. And we're so quick to call Him Abba, Father, that we forget to fear Him. He is God. And we should approach him. Yeah, I've already preached that one, Don. Uh, hey, we, amen, you're right on target. Uh, we, 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 we should approach him with reverence and fear. And that's not describing merely a corporate gathering. That's describing your everyday life. Do you think of God as great? It might not be a bad thing to return to this simple prayer that, that, that we learned as children. God is great. Before we get to the God is good. Now, you can't look at the holiness and the perfections of, 
of God and all of His majesty without also looking at His goodness, His, His love. You see, here's the great truth. The loving God is holy and a holy God is perfectly loving. God is love. He is loving us in such a way that He made a pathway for us to be forgiven our sin. He is loving so much for us that that He is uh, uh, kind to us even in our unfaithfulness. Aren't you glad for the patience of God? If it weren't for the patience of God, I'd be a dead man. I mean, he's patient. He endures with our stubborn hearts. He endures with our selfishness. He endures our our rebellions and our unfaithfulness. He is patient with us. And he's merciful. Oh, he's merciful. You know, mercy is where God doesn't give us what we deserve. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I deserve a pounding pretty much every single day. And God doesn't always give me the pounding. He does sometimes. But that's an act of his grace. That's giving me what I need. God is merciful. And God is kind. Guys, listen. When we think of God, we need to think of God as great, but we also need to think of God as good. He loves you. Guys, He loves you. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, Moses is writing about who God is. He is patient and long-suffering. He extends His covenant love generation after generation. To the thousands of generations. He is a God who is compassionate. He's God that cares for you. God is great. God is good. And then the next phrase of that little prayer. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands we are fed. Thank you Lord for daily bread. Do you realize that this is the proper perspective of a follower of Christ? One of absolute dependence upon God for daily provision. Do you realize that God cares so much? Not just that he sent Jesus to rescue you from your sin. But he cares so much that he is going to take care of you in the daily details of your life. God cares to provide for you. To take care of you. This is not some man-centered, pragmatic view of, 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 uh, of God where well, I begin with my needs and then I, I think, well, then God's the Santa Claus to meet my needs. No, this is the right view of a good God throughout Scripture who brings manna to his people, gives water from a rock, who gives his law and writes it on tablets and then writes it on the stony hearts of his followers. This is the God who cares for us so that we can cry out to him when we're laden with care and concern and we cry out to him in our neediness and even in our despair. And my God, who supplies all my needs, will also take care of me in the midst of my own struggle. Guys, listen. 
instead of being an autonomous individual, independent and I can make it on my own, we need to be broken before a holy God and acknowledge that he is the one who meets my needs. Guys, until we are weak before him, we'll never know the provision of his strength. Until we are broken before him, we will never taste the joy of him lifting us up. Until we recognize that we are hopeless without him, we will never taste the unfettered joy of his abiding presence. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. God the Father is the Lord of love. Secondly, we see that God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the giver of grace. God the Son is the giver of grace. Last week, we talked about Jesus being the giver of grace. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 13, says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the grace that, that flows from Him and through Him to us. Now, we talked about this last week, and, and, and again, don't have time to, to just dig too deep in there. I encourage you to go back and look at the, uh, 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 listen to the sermon or look at the video and, 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 and hear about God's grace pouring for us through Jesus Christ. But I do want to read a passage. Oh, by the way, there, there are a couple of affirmations we need to make about Jesus, too. Okay, Uh, John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. All of John chapter 1, but especially John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. In John chapter 1, verse 1, John, the follower of Jesus, the disciple of Jesus, now the the author of the gospel, he writes these words, In the beginning, pointing back to Genesis 1-1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You skip on down to verse 14, And the scripture says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So as you look at John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14, the question is, who is the word? Well, verse 14 shows us that the word is Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That can only mean Jesus. So you go back to verse 1. And what's John saying? In the beginning, from the very beginning of time, before time even began, in the beginning was the Word, was Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The affirmation that we need to make about Jesus, God the Son, is that Jesus is and always has been God. Jesus is and always has been God. Verse 14, along with Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, but, but especially here, John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus became something that He was not before. Flesh and bone. Where verse 1 tells us that Jesus is and always has been God, verse 14 tells us that Jesus, God the Son, became flesh and bone. 
He dwelt among men and women. He was born in Bethlehem. He came on a mission of rescue. He came to deliver God's grace to sinners like you and me. The affirmation is that Jesus is and always has been God. And Jesus, who is God, became a man. Add a couple of more addendums there. Jesus is fully God and he became fully man. And while he was fully man, he was still fully God. And that's a big deal that none of us will be able to wrap our heads around. Jesus, fully God. Jesus, fully man. As we look at who Jesus is, we need to understand that Jesus, the Son, is God. Now, what does that mean for us? As we look upon Jesus and look at his earthly ministry, we see that Jesus, according to Colossians chapter 1, was the sustainer of all creation. He's the one that that was the agent of creation. We see that Jesus was there at the beginning of time in the creative work of God of of the Trinity, uh, creating the the heavens and the earth and the birds and the bees and man and woman. We see, according to Colossians chapter 1, that he holds all things together and that in him everything, everything consists. Everything is glued together. Jesus is the one who sustains the universe. We see that Jesus is the king. He, He is supreme over all things. But as we consider Jesus at work in the world, the one thing we do know as followers of Christ is that if it weren't for Jesus, we would not know God's grace. And if we did not know God's grace, then we would not know God. Passage, and by now, if, y'all been, if we've been together for any period of time, you know that Ephesians chapter 2 is a pretty big deal for me. Ephesians chapter 2 is a passage that I regularly return to in my own life and here in in this gathering because it describes our journey as followers of Christ and and our journey before becoming followers of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul is describing humanity apart from Christ. He He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, who now works among the sons of disobedience, among whom you also once conducted yourselves in the lust of the flesh and of the mind, and you were by nature children of wrath just as the others. All that to say is you were lost and you were headed for hell. That's what it means. We were without God, we were without hope, and there wasn't anything we can do about it because we were dead in our sin. So that's Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. I really want you to focus in beginning in verse 4. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together. And he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might display the exceeding riches of his kindness toward us who believe in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the avenue by which we have been saved by God's grace. Jesus is the giver of grace. By his own death on a cross for sinners like you and me and his resurrection from the dead, he imparts this wondrous gift of God's rescuing love to us so that we who are dead now can be made alive. This is the work of God's grace. This is the work of God the Son. 
He is the giver of grace. So God the Father is the Lord of love. God the Son uh, is, is the one who is the giver of grace. And, and God the Spirit is the creator of intimacy. The creator of intimacy. Listen again to first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That term fellowship means intimate community. It, it means get together like family. It's fellowship. So how does this fellowship take place? Well, there are some affirmations we need to make about the Spirit of God. Again, according to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, we see that the Spirit of God was a part of the creative work. The Spirit of God is and always has been God. As we look at the way Jesus described the Spirit of God, he described the Spirit of God in John chapter 3 and in John chapter 6 as the agent of salvation. He's the one that, that, that applies this rescuing grace of God to our hearts. Without the Spirit of God... Now, drawing us to God, we would not come. If the Spirit of God did not draw us to the cross of Christ, we would never receive the grace of God through faith in Christ. The Spirit of God is the enactor of this fellowship that we will taste with God, this intimacy with God. When we become followers of Christ, the Spirit of God uh, then takes up residence in our lives so that we are the possessors of the Spirit of God. We, according to 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, 6 and 2 Corinthians 6, now we are the temple of the Spirit of God. The very Spirit of God resides within us. If you're a follower of Christ, make no mistake that the stamp, the seal, the proof that you are a follower of Christ is not that you've been dunked in a tub. The proof, the stamp, the seal that you are a follower of Christ is not that you're a member of this church. The proof, the stamp, the seal that you are a follower of Christ is that the Spirit of God resides within you. That's Ephesians chapter 1. Romans chapter 8 says, that As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. Without the Spirit of God, we are not followers of Christ. But if we are followers of Christ, make no mistake, the Spirit of God resides within us. So what difference does that make? If the Spirit of God resides within you, make no mistake, you are living in intimacy with God. Is a, is, is a sponge... Intimate with the water that fills it? You think of a sponge. Is there any place in that sponge? You stick that sponge in a bucket of water and you pull it out. Every porous fiber of that sponge is saturated with the water. It, it has permeated that sponge. That's what the Spirit of God does for everyone who is a follower of Christ. Now, we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God by living in disobedience to Him. We can, we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God by, by rebelling and being unfaithful. But make no mistake, today as a follower of Christ, we live in intimacy with God because the Spirit of God resides within us. And that should make a difference in how we live. The Spirit of God resides within us means that we should live according to the direction of the Spirit of God, by the power of the Spirit of God. 
The Spirit of God makes intimate that which is infinite. I was too young to, to remember the day, but, but I've read about it, and some of y'all, uh, y'all remember it. The day when human beings found a way to break the atmosphere of the earth, to travel the thousands upon thousands of miles, and to land a spaceship on the moon. To get out of that spacecraft, that lunar module or whatever it was, and to step on the moon. And some of you could describe that in great detail and the wonder and the amazement that that was. Do you realize that when, before humanity walked on the moon, the moon was essentially just this bauble up on the horizon? We knew it was a real place, but it was really kind of a fairy tale type place. And sing songs about the man on the moon and all that kind of stuff. Thing is made of cheese. It, it's just up there. And, and we're not, it's infinite. It's beyond our reach. But the day humanity landed on that moon and stuck their feet in the dust of the moon and picked up rocks of the moon and brought them back and put them in museums and we can see it, the moon became very personal. It wasn't just some bauble out there, some, some gem in the sky. Now it is real, intimately real. Friends, that's what the Spirit of God does for us. When we embrace Christ and, 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 and God pours His Spirit within us, then the infinite becomes intimate to us so that we might live for God's glory and pleasure every day of our lives. The time is gone. I don't have time to, to, to really go any further other than to say this. What do you do now that you see who God is? What's your response? Even the incomplete and inadequate explanations and, and offerings that, that I've given today, still there is something of the majesty of God that should capture your attention in the holiness of God and the love of God and the grace of God and the intimacy with God. That should capture us. So what do we do when we are, oh, we are in the presence of God? I just point you to Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And there were angels all around, and they were singing to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the temple shook, and Isaiah was frightened. And in the presence of holy God, he cried out, Woe is me, I am undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the Lord, the Lord of hosts. What do we do when confronted by God himself? We must repent and confess our sin. I'm talking to believers, followers of Christ. If there is any remaining sin in your life, confess it now. Repent of it now. Don't hold on to it. Don't excuse it. Don't rationalize it. Be broken by it. We're in the presence of a holy God. 
But then as the Lord in His grace cleansed Isaiah, He then asked, He said, God spoke and He said, Whom shall I send and who shall go for us? And Isaiah's response was, Here am I, Lord, send me. Again, our appropriate response after confession and repentance and, 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 and worshiping God through that confession and repentance should be service. Are you committed to obey God and to serve Him? Not just in this place, but as you go. Whom shall I send, God asks. And who shall go for us? Will you say, here am I, send me. What we believe about God matters because what we believe leads to how we behave. Does your behavior give any indication that you really believe in God?